Greetings and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor and preacher from a place called Crawley in the southeast of England, just south of London. I serve in a place called Maidenbower Baptist Church. I'm the host of this podcast in which we work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, attempting to learn from them, both as Christians and perhaps as servants of God in particular ways in ministry, as to how we can more effectively and more fruitfully and more joyfully hold up and hold up out our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The podcasts are produced by Media Gratii, and you can find them at mediagratii.org and then go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts where you can find not only this but other podcasts that are produced by them and you can sign up to the weekly newsletter for this one where you'll find a, a, a text of the featured sermon for the week because not only do we read one a day for those who can but we zero in on one a week for those for whom that's an easier and more manageable amount and this week we've reached sermon 878 uh, having read in the week from 878 to 884. Then next week it'll be 885 to 891 and 885 will be our featured sermon. That one is entitled Serving the Lord and it's from Romans chapter 12 and verse 11 if you're wanting to get ahead. But for this week our sermon is entitled A Well-Ordered Life and it's sermon 878. It was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington on the 27th of June, a Sunday morning, 1869. The text was Psalm 119 and verse 133. Order my steps in your word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. This, Spurgeon insists immediately, is the prayer of a saved man and one who knows himself saved. And those who are truly saved, he says, are among the very loudest to cry out against anything like confidence in good works. You hear them denounce with all their hearts self-righteousness in every shape. They preach up with might and main the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only confidence upon which a soul may rest. And yet, at the same time, these people are of all others in the world the most zealous for good works and the most earnest themselves to be holy and in the fear of God to adorn the doctrine of God their Saviour in all things. Now, in this sermon, Spurgeon has quite an interesting structure and balance. It's, uh, there's nothing wrong with it, but there are two things about it that I think are notable. The first is that he proceeds in quite a puritanical fashion, expounding the text, identifying, if not quite the doctrine, then at least the emphasis of it, and then developing that and applying it. In doing so, he seems to be really carried away in his first point of three, and he spends really the bulk of the sermon developing the the orderliness of the Christian life. And you might say on the one hand that uh, that's not a great example of uh, pulpit control of your material, managing the material that you have, uh, on the other hand, what is impressive is the way Spurgeon kind of redeems it and uh, and brings it back round and still covers the territory that he wants to, uh, allowing the, the emphasis of the sermon to fall naturally where it does under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So uh, you can look at it both of those sides. But he begins with the, the, the substance of the text, and he's really only concentrating 
on the first half of it. Order my steps in your word. So order my steps, your word. And he just gives a a little nod to the, the latter phrase, let not any iniquity have dominion over me. So the orderliness then is to uh, to direct or to set straight or to appoint or to firmly establish or to rightly frame. He was not afraid of being laughed at for living by method or rule, says Spurgeon of David, for he saw method and rule to be divine institutions. He did not aspire to a random life or envy the free livers whose motto is do whatever you like. He had no lustings to be his own master. He wished in all things to be governed by the superior and all-perfect will of God. And the next word, my steps. David is anxious as to details. He doesn't say, order the whole of my pilgrimage. Of course, he means that, but his expression is more expressive and painstaking. He would have each single step ordered in holiness. He would enjoy heavenly guidance in each minute portion of his journey towards heaven. Much of the beauty of holiness then lies in little things. Microscopic holiness is the perfection of excellence. If a life will bear examination in each hour of it, it is pure indeed. Really helpful thought, although quite penetrating. That it's not just the general tenor of my days or my weeks. It's the the moment-by-moment obedience. Are we concerned that God would appoint every step of our pilgrimage and then order my steps in your word, not by your word, nor according to your word? It means that, but more. The psalmist evidently looks upon the word of God as being the very path of his life, and he prays that he may walk within the lines which God's word has marked out, may keep always within the sacred enclosures which the commands of God have made for the king's highway. And then, let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Frequently, says Spurgeon, the psalmist adds a negative petition to his positive prayers as if to complete them. The second expression is weaker, pitched upon a lower key, as if the suppliant would say, If, O Lord, my steps cannot be so ordered in your word as to be altogether without sin, yet let not any iniquity gain the mastery of my spirit. So there's the exposition opening up the words one by one, and says Spurgeon, leaving out that last sentence, please consider with me the solemnly practical topic of sanctification. So in that more puritanic structure, you've now got your doctrine. He's saying that that we as, as believers, we ought to have our footsteps ordered according to the word of God. That should be something to which we are committed and which we actively pursue in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so, says Spurgeon, consider with me the order of a holy life, the rule of holiness by which that order is arranged, and thirdly, the great director of that order, the Lord himself, before a few practical words in conclusion. And then, as we've already said, really, almost everything that follows is under that first heading, the order of a holy life. And it's it's an interesting uh, section, even in itself, because of the Uh, the way that he really divides it up uh, on at least two levels. So follow along with me if you can. You might even want to have the the sermon in front of you as you listen, if that's an opportunity. But if not, I hope that we'll be able to, uh, to keep your attention here. David prays that his steps may be ordered. Holiness rejoices in symmetry, harmony, proportion, and order. 
So consider at the outset the order of holiness is conformity to the prescribed rule. The law, not in the hand of Moses, but in the hand and life of the Redeemer, is the rule of life to a Christian man. Every step a man takes in life, remember, is a step towards heaven or hell. We serve God or the devil in all that we do. No action of a man's life is unimportant. The pilgrim either gains or loses by each step he takes. True, being in Christ, the believer shall not perish, but being a child of God, his naughtiness, that is his wickedness, shall bring upon him certain and sharp chastisement. If he sins, he shall lose rest of spirit and somewhat of the light of his Lord's countenance if he does err. So, even when we are alone, says Spurgeon, and do not seem to have any duty imperatively impressed upon us, yet standing as we do even in solitude in the full blaze of the divine inspection, it is always incumbent upon us to the highest degree to watch the outgoings of our hearts, lest by any means, by evil imaginations, we vex the Spirit of God. Men become fools when they think with levity even of their most inconsiderable actions. Life is evermore a great solemnity, linked as it is to God and to eternity. Take care, he says then, that you so regard it, and never trifle with this life as though it were a vanity fair. Many men seem to play at living, but he does best who lives earnestly and thoughtfully each single instant, lifts up his heart to God, that every one of his separate thoughts, words and deeds may bear the scales of the last judgment and may be found in conformity with the righteousness of God. So here's that really precise and, and aware, self-aware, God-aware consciousness of what it means to live a holy life. So the first part of the order of a holy life is that of conformity to the Lord's will. And then he says, I'm going to call the next element for the helping of our memories, the arithmetical. Things are never in order when the seconds before the first or the fifth takes precedence of the second. Order in life then consists very much in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then seeking other things in their due place. Order in a Christian life consists in putting the soul first and the body next in putting eternal treasure first and worldly gain second, third, fourth, or far behind, in seeking first the glory of God and our own happiness only as a subsidiary aim. So his point here is that in Christian living, there are some things that are first and there are some things that are not. And there are some things that are priorities and there are some things that are not. And so a Christian, if he's going to be well-ordered in his steps, needs this arithmetical order to understand what is first and second and third and fourth and so on. Another form of order, he says, is the geometrical. He who did a little for Christ when but a babe in grace should do more as a young man and most of all as a father. He who, having but little faith, could bid the sycamore tree be plucked up should, when he has more faith, command the mountain to be removed and cast into the sea. Spurgeon's talking here about real growth. We might even say exponential growth. We're never to be satisfied with what we've done. If we're self-contented, we'll soon be poor. If you once say, I have attained, then you shall drift down the current. But a holy dissatisfaction, a craving after holiness, an opening of the mouth, a panting after something better, this it is which will conserve what you have as well as enrich you in things to which you've not yet attained. So, says Spurgeon, you need to be going on, adding, uh, increasing, 
Then he says there's another order, the proportional order. So you're following along here. There's the, the basic principle of conformity to the prescribed rule. Then you've got arithmetical, the firstly, secondly, thirdly. Then geometrically, the at the 1, then the 2, then the 4, then the 8, then the 16, then the 32, then the 64, then the 128, uh, and so on and so forth. And now the proportional, that all Christians should endeavor so to balance their lives that there shall not be an excess of one virtue and a deficiency of another. Now, what does Spurgeon mean? He says, we've known professors whose graces in one department have been so apparent as to become glaring, while the absence of graces has been lamentably manifest. Courage some will have till they are rude and coarse and intrusive. Modesty will rule in others till they're cowardly and pliable. Not a few are so full of love that their talk is sickening with cant expressions, disgusting to honest minds, while others are so faithful that they see faults which don't exist. A third class are so tender that for the most glaring vice they make apologies and sin goes unrebuked in their presence. But the character of our Lord was such that no one virtue has undue preponderance. What he means here is that these aren't Christians, if you like, with heads like pumpkins and hearts like peas or vice versa. If you were to look at the, the body of their virtues, you would not see, for example, that they've, they've been down the gym and they've worked their right arms phenomenally, but their left arms not so much, and their, their legs like little twiglets, not at all. No, we, we want a mingling of all the perfections to make up the one, a proper proportion and balance in our virtues, a combining of all the sweet spices to make up a rare perfume, such as only God's Holy Spirit itself can make, but which God accepts wherever he discovers it. And then he says, there's an order of relation, because we don't stand in the world alone. We're all the centres of circles, innumerable lines intersecting each other in the region of our hearts. Now, the believer should ask that his steps may be ordered in conformity to the relations which he bears to all things. And Spurgeon now points this, and here's the second layer, if you will, in three directions toward God. What is the order of my life? He says we're God's creatures, we're God's children, we're God's servants, we're God's elect, we're the members of Christ's body, we're Christ's spouse. So what manner of people then ought we to be? We need to live in our relations to God himself. We need to be conscious of what it means to bear this, this heart toward God. And then we have a relationship to the Christian church, and we need to understand how then we relate to our fellow pilgrims. Spurgeon says we are not to be censorious, that's a judgmental and, and harshly critical, and yet not blind to their faults. We are to be zealous, but not passionate. He means uh, full of uh, anger, independent of man, but not disobedient to Christian rule and order. Alas, again, he says, how many are unwilling to take their true place in the church, but desire to be the first and to be highly esteemed. To certain persons, it's one of the hardest lessons to know how they ought to behave themselves in the house of God. Factious spirits, argumentative people, cannot learn the lesson and must needs set up small establishments of their own on the principle, and he's quoting from Milton, that they had sooner rule in hell than serve in heaven. They cannot bring themselves to acknowledge discipline or maintain order. From such may the Lord deliver us. And then families. What a strange thing must holiness be if the man who possesses it 
has to act in conformity to a thousand relationships. What a wonderful piece of artistic judgment, a painting by a master hand, a work of art unparalleled, a music of intricate and ravishing harmonies, because the man has his, his wife or his mother, he has his parents or his children, he has his servants or his neighbours, he has his uh, Christian friends and he has the sinners who are around him. And he says the the balancing of the clouds then, the arranging of the firmament, the upheaval of the mountains and the guidance of the stars, the creation of living bodies with all their wondrous tissue of muscle and sinew and nerve, I and all other works of God put together do not exceed in splendor of wisdom and power the holiness of a life molded by the Spirit's sacred power. In holiness, says Spurgeon, God is more clearly seen than in anything else save in the person of Christ Jesus the Lord, of whose life such holiness is but a repetition. Now, he says, I haven't finished. So, remember where we've been? We've got this uh, order of conformity to truth. We've got the arithmetical, the geometrical, the proportional, the relational. Now, the, the order of period, the order of the celestial almanac. Punctuality is demanded. Seasons must be kept. Due time must be regarded. The Christian man can only be said to have his life ordered rightly as to time when all his time is sanctified to noblest ends. Perpetuity of uprightness is the very beauty of holiness. No man's life is well ordered if by fits and starts he is careful and again is careless as to how he acts. Holiness, then, consists not in the rushing of intense resolve, which, like Kishon, sweeps everything before it and then subsides, but in the constant flow of Siloah's still waters, which perpetually make glad the city of our God. Holiness is no blazing comet, amazing nations with a transient glory. It is a fixed star that, with still, calm radiance, shines on through the darkness of a corrupt age. Holiness is persevering obedience. It is not holiness at all if it's only occasional zeal and sensational piety. But it's not only persevering, it's seasonable. It's the fault of numbers, he says, that their virtues are always too late. They're patient when the pain is over. They're generous when the opportunity for liberalities passed away. They're forgiving after they've vented their anger in unkind words. They're sorrowful after they've done the ill, and therefore evidently right at heart. But if they could have abstained from the ill, how much better. So these are trees then that bring forth their fruit in season. And then there's one more. There's the order of suitability. What would be right enough and as much as would be expected in an ordinary man is not the measure of a Christian's service to his God. So it's it's characterized in this respect. There's a peculiar tenderness of walk, elevation of spirit, unworldliness of mind expected from the Christian, not as a man, but as a man twice born as a favourite of heaven, as one whose way is Christ, whose end is Christ, and who therefore cannot be allowed and tolerated in conduct such as might be expected from an unconverted man. Now he says, I've spent too long on that, but the subject tempted us. There are, I love the way he says it tempted us rather than him. There are vast battalions of thought in ambush in the text. It does make you wonder how much Spurgeon sometimes leaves out in his sermons, let alone how much he puts in. But he's really trying to develop this, this whole great notion of the orderliness of the Christian life. And I wonder if we've thought about it 
even in some sense in the way that Spurgeon does. How many different ways the, the, the Christian life is ordered in the light of God's word and character, our relationships to him and to one another, a sense of what fits together, what holds together, what has priority. It's, it's a really beautiful uh, demonstration of, of how to, to unpick and unpack just that one uh, notion of orderliness but it means that he's now got to dash on. Uh, and I think you can almost hear him uh, reading off the, the headings from his little scrap of paper that he keeps his sermon notes on, uh, attempting to make sure he covers all the territory. So very briefly, in the second place, we will note the rule of this order. And it's thy word, not my wishes, not mere self-will. The good man is anxious to be conformed to God's word, whether the road be rough or smooth. It's foolish to be singular, except when to be singular is to be right. But then singularity and even eccentricity become the highest wisdom. Spurgeon says, you know, don't, don't be distinctive for its own sake. Don't just make a point of not being like other people. But if everybody else is going in the wrong way, don't be ashamed to stand in the right one. It's better to go to heaven alone than to hell with a herd. And some, he says, they order their footsteps according to impressions. Every now and then I meet with people whom I think to be rather weak in the head, he says, who journey from place to place and will perform follies by the gross under the belief that they're doing the will of God because some silly whim of their diseased brains is imagined to be an inspiration from above. Now, he says there, there are times when the Holy Spirit will uh, prompt us in particular ways. But he said to live expecting God to guide us in that way is nuts. I've been the subject of such impressions, he says. I've seen very singular results from them. But to live by impressions is oftentimes to live the life of a fool and even to fall into downright rebellion against the revealed word of God. Not your impressions then, but that which is in this book must always guide you. And he says it can't be selective. Some are pickers and choosers. One of God's commands they will obey. Another they're conveniently blind unto it or directly disobedient to it. Oh, that it were not so with God's people, that they had a balanced mind in their obedience and would take God's word without making exceptions, following the Lamb wherever he goes. Are we then tempted to, to make our own whims and, and fancies the guide of our steps uh, maybe even to dress it up in spiritual language. Oh, the Lord told me to do that. Spurgeon said if it didn't come from the Bible, he probably didn't. He was not holy, says Spurgeon. David was not holy because he felt he ought to be and yet wished to be otherwise. But if there were anything good and lovely, he desired to have it. If there were anywhere in God's garden a rare fruit or flower of purity and excellence, he longed to have it transplanted into his soul. <clears throat> that in all things his life might be what? The perfect transcript of the word of God. So no whimsy and no selectivity, but rather, oh God, teach me the truth and guide my footsteps, order my footsteps according to your word. Stick to God's testimonies, says Spurgeon. There's a perfect rule in the divine statutes and may the Holy Spirit cast us in the mold of the word. And now he's really running out of time. Two or three words upon the director whom David had chosen. He applies to God himself. What does David mean? Here's the blizzard. Lord, give me a heart to love you. 
I beseech you, change me so that whereas I once tended towards evil by the force of nature, I may now tend towards righteousness by a yet more powerful force, that of a new nature. Order my footsteps, put a propelling power within my spirit that shall constrain my steps towards the right and the true and the holy. Then next, Lord, illuminate me to know your word. Pour a flood of light into my spirit that I may never mistake good for evil, never choose light for darkness. Oh, light up the darkest recesses of my soul that I may always discern at the very first look that which is contrary to your mind when it comes in the most flattering guise. He means again, let your Holy Spirit overshadow me. Let my spirit only follow, but let your spirit lead the way. Let your spirit subdue all my faculties, understanding, affections, and will. Let everything be subordinated to a divine government, that so being no longer independent of my God, I may be holy as he is holy. It's lovely how he basically turns all of these into prayers. Uh, and again, I wonder if he's sort of doing that on the spot. Uh, maybe again under the with the help of the Holy Spirit, casting these points into an immediately very practical form. He seems to mean again, charm me with the beauties of holiness. Let me so see the example of your dear son that I may be fascinated by it, compelled to do it, to do as he did by the divine order and behest of his example. And doesn't he also mean, Lord, so arrange providence that I may not be tempted above what I'm able to bear, Check me when I'm likely to sin. Send me help just when I shall need it to achieve some difficult task of obedience. Looking then for providence to work hand in hand with grace. And so he wants to conclude then with two or three words of practical advice. Do I really need, he asks, to commend to you earnestly as members of the church to seek after conformity to the Lord's word as laid down in his revealed will? He says, let me plead with you. If you want to see the gospel go forth, you need to seek after holiness. A holy church is always a powerful church, a band of people without gifts, without wealth, who exhibit much of the likeness of Christ will be a power in the land. So covet not talent, but covet grace. Pant not so much after honor as after holiness. This is the great point with you. If you are to win the battle for Christ and put the crown upon his head. And then I commend holiness because above all things in this world, it's one of the most comforting in the hour of trouble. Let a soul be brought low and let there be sin connected with its humiliation and there's a thorn in the pillow. But when a man knows that in the sight of God he's been kept from evil and his integrity cannot be impugned, then quiet reigns in his soul. The best way to enjoy fellowship with God is holiness. Many saints of God do not see Christ's face by the month together because they are careless in their living. And then he says it's the common talk with earnest souls then that the times are flat and stale. They're not so bad as they were, yet still there's no advance in the kingdom such as we looked for. But remember, here's the point, if we want to see the Master come in the power and fullness of his Spirit, one of the surest ways to get him is to be more holy. His church hinders the blessing by her inconsistency. A worldly church chases away the Spirit of God. Wherever there's a people conformed to the maxims and ways of the world, indifferent in prayer, sluggish in effort, there will be the name to live, but there'll only be death. But where there's a people who with little strength 
have nevertheless kept God's word, and above all have kept their garments unspotted, there will ere long come the making bare of the almighty arm in the eyes of all the people. So wash ye, make ye clean, put away your secret iniquities, humble yourselves, O professors, before God. May the Lord give you the spirit of repentance. May he pour out his spirit upon each of us. May we put away the old leaven and so keep the feast. He cries out here, O God, send us holiness. If by no other means than let trouble come to work in us hatred of sin, if you cannot answer otherwise, then by terrible things in righteousness answer us, O God, but do make us holy for your honour's sake. Can we pray like that? Lord, if it if it's an answer of a terrible thing in righteousness, if you have to, to humble us and to chasten us and to admonish us, if we need to afflict us, O oh God, whatever it takes for us to be holy, that you may be honoured, then, O oh God, do it in us. And I think Spurgeon is absolutely sincere. I don't think that's rhetoric and, uh, and just blather for a moment. This is the heartfelt desire of the man of God. And then, as, as so often, he, he, he closes with a concern for the unconverted. You've never prayed, he says, some of you, order my steps in your word. And your life's not ordered in God's word. Some of you have halting steps. You're stuck between two opinions and you cannot make up your minds. So which will you choose? God or the devil? Holiness or sin? Heaven or hell? Oh, turn to God, he pleads. And some of you are hypocritical. You walk today like Christians and tomorrow's worldlings. You sing the songs of Zion and then chant the hymns of Baal. And he says, can you not now come to Christ? Will you not turn your back upon these things, cease from your evil ways and turn at his rebuke? I put this prayer before you, not that you may use it, but that you may judge yourselves by it. Really interesting. If it's a Christian man's prayer, then the unbeliever, although they may not use it as a Christian would, may nevertheless be measured by it. If this one prayer condemns you then, how will you bear the majesty of the judge of all the earth, who shall come in person to judge the world in righteousness according to our gospel? Jesus has died for sinners. He came to save the ungodly. Trust him, trust him, trust him, pleads the preacher. And from this day you shall begin to live. Oh, may the Spirit of God help you to trust him. And then, but not till then, shall ye be in a fit state to breathe this prayer for sanctification to, the, to God of perfect holiness. Order my footsteps in your word. There's a neatness there, a holy neatness. Spurgeon has not forgotten the point of this sermon. Sanctification is the great thrust of his text. What does that look like? It looks like an ordered life. By what standard is that order governed? By the word of God. And who is the one to whom we go for grace and strength to live such a spiritually orderly life? It is the God who gives us the word himself that we might love him, that we might know his truth, that his spirit might guide us, that his holiness might entrance us, and that his providence might preserve and protect us. I hope it's been a blessing to you to consider these things, and I trust that God will favor us with a desire for true holiness that, that nothing will quench or undo. I hope, too, you'll join me again next week uh, if God spares us all to, to listen again to the next uh, podcast on the next featured sermon 
Serving the Lord, it's Sermon 885 in Volume 15 of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. And I hope you'll join us, and I hope it will continue to be a blessing to you. Thank you, and take care.